Hello my fan, fan friends, welcome to another Rahala Stapa. This week was recorded at the Bristol Slapstick Festival at the end of January. Fantastic event in Bristol that celebrates both slapstick comedy and comedy in general. Do support it if you can. Um, I am talking to the impressionist and very down to earth and for an impressionist, very normal person, John Colshaw. Uh, it was a lot of fun talking to him. Um, I hope you will enjoy it. We're doing more live Rahalastapas um, coming up very soon at the Leicester Square Theatre. In fact, I think they've started. I'm just trying to work it out whether they started by the time you hear this. I think they have. Um, so uh, you've just missed Paul Chuckle and Dr. Janina Ramirez. Uh, but coming up on the 7th of March, we have the fabulous Charlie Borman and also Terry Christian in a Lee and Herring tribute act evening, which I think you will enjoy. Um, the next week after that, we have Jamie Demetrio and the journalist Samira Armhead. Uh, the week after that, we have Armando Yanucci and Rosie Holt. That one's pretty much sold out. Probably sold out by the time you see this, but do put your name down for returns. And then it goes on. There's some fantastic other acts. Uh, Omid Jalili and Lazy Susan, Dara O'Brien, and then some other exciting acts I haven't yet revealed in April as well, I'm very excited about. Uh, go to richherring.com slash gigs and you can see all the links. Also, if you want, can't get to the theatre or if it's sold out, uh, go to gfsboxoffice.com and you can buy live streaming tickets for each night, £10 a night, two interviews. Please support that if you can, if we can make that work. Uh, for us, that would be fantastic and we can keep live streaming stuff into the future. Just £10 for two shows. That's not so bad, is it? Anyway, let's sit back, relax and enjoy Raha Lasta Pa. The, all the podcasts will go out for free as usual, so don't worry if you don't want to pay any money. Of course, you don't have to pay any money. Just watch stuff for free and listen to stuff for free. Uh, sit back, relax, enjoy Rahalastapa with the wonderful John Colshaw. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a huge slapstick welcome to the wonderful Mr. Richard Herring! Thank you. Oh, lovely to see you all. Hello, Bristol. How lovely to see you. Thank you very much. Welcome to the show. We're at uh, St George's in Bristol. Uh, welcome to Richard Herring's loving slapstick twattery podcast. Uh, that I was hanging around with the people who pulled down the statue of Colston uh, the other day. Uh, they call it Rahalastapa, so I don't know if that's going to... Oh, there are some people in, that's good. Because it was sort of like a hybrid slapstick festival, at the Bristol Slapstick Festival, so I'm doing a chat. But we're going to put it out as a podcast as well, so it's a, it's a, it's a little bit of both. Um, I was talking about the Colston guys uh, to uh, my four-year-old son. We were passing by the, uh, the place he was thrown in. <laughs> uh, and he was very keen to jump in and see the statue in there. It's a shame you didn't leave him down there, but never mind. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shame. You know, people love old Colston here in Bristol. It's a, it's a shame what those guys did, isn't it? <laughs> Um, I've, I think in the 1990s we were talking about how the, when we played the Colston Norway saying it's nice to see a, a venue funded by slavery and it's, uh, but it's I think it's all changing now we're not we wouldn't go to the Colston Hall we're at St George's named after St George who oh he killed some dragons he'd probably be in trouble these days wouldn't he for <laughs> killing endangered species that's it you can't judge people by the standards of today that's the <laughs> all right um 
so I just want to say uh, briefly, uh, this Slapstick Festival, Barry Cryer was obviously such a huge part of this festival and um, sadly uh, died a, a couple of days ago just before doing this. And, we, and I was very, very lucky to know him as a friend, but also he did do uh, my podcast uh, back in, I think, August to September. Um, so we've got the, if, the, if you get a chance to watch or listen to that podcast, it's an amazing tribute to Barry. It's, it's all him. Uh, he's very, very funny and... Uh, Possibly, I think, his last appearance on stage, which is, uh, is very... Uh, and there's a lovely bit at the end where he just waves at the audience, and it's a, it's, a, it's a very fitting tribute to a great man. I just wanted to tell one story about him uh, that uh, one of his stories uh, was when uh, Stuart Lee was doing very well in, in, in Edinburgh with his, one of his uh, comeback stand-up shows, and Barry went up to him in Edinburgh one night with a kind of face like thunder and saying... He was very cross with Stuart. Stuart said, what's wrong with me? I'm, I'm very angry with you, Stuart. And Stuart's, what, what's, what, what's happened? He was really playing this, you know, I'm, I'm very angry with what you've done. And Stuart said, what? He said, that, uh, I did that vomiting into the anus of Christ routine. I've been, I've been doing that from the 60s, since the 60s. You <laughs> totally ripped me off. And knowing Stuart, I know for a second he'll have thought, oh, God, before he, before he realised it was a joke. Because that's... That's the man. He was an incredible man. So this is a tribute to uh, Barry, uh, this festival, this podcast. I'd like to do that, but let's crack on. Uh, hopefully tonight's guest won't die in the next three or four months. <laughs> hopefully, let's, fingers crossed, let's hope not. He's probably, he's probably the curse of Rahalastapur struck again. There's three, three down, three, three guests down so far. <laughs> Of about 350, it's not bad. One of them was Nicholas Parsons. I mean, it's common, it's not that. My guest tonight, and this afternoon, in fact, is probably best known for his appearance as Harry Taylor in Heartbeat. That's why we're all here to see him. That's where we remember him from. Will you please welcome the amazing John Coleshaw, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. He's, look, he's looking very healthy. He's looking very healthy. <laughs> Hello, John. Hello there, Richard. How are you doing? Love to see you. I remember that, uh, that part in Heartbeat. Yeah, well, because you've done a few acting roles. I'm presuming this wasn't uh, an impression of someone. It, it, in a way, it was. Was it? it was, OK. It was sort of based on a, a younger Alan Sugar. Okay. That's where I based it. And also based on um, a producer I knew called Richard Hearsey, okay. who sort of spoke in a similar kind of way. <laughs> so I thought, you know, a 60s entrepreneur. Oh, good. That might sort of hang together quite nicely. Yeah, good. Was, there, was it Nick Berry, Nick, Nick Berry era heartbeat? No, it wasn't that era. It was, uh, it was a, a few... I think uh, Nick had regenerated into okay. other policemen uh, <laughs> later than that. Um, but yeah, around about 2006. Happy memories. Yeah. Near Gothland in the North York Moors. Okay. And the pub that they used in... The, you see, I never expect... This is the joy of yeah, your interviews. Right. <laughs> I, ne I never expected heartbeat uh, tales to emerge. <laughs> uh, but the, the pub that they use, the story goes that um, Queen Victoria and her sort of entourage, if they had entourages then, if that's the right word, <laughs> they sheltered in that pub from a storm. Okay. And the fire was lit for her to keep Queen Victoria in a state of warmth and well-being and reassurance. And so the story goes, they've kept that fire burning, never let it go out, ever since. <laughs> and filming that Heartbeat episode, it was on a very hot day and the fire was going. So. <laughs> you chucked a bottle of water, a bucket of water over it. No! 
why have you done that? Um, look, I've been, you know, I, I, I know a lot about your career. It's always a, a fun thing with this show that I kind of look deeply into everything you've done. And uh, I didn't really know where you'd sort of uh, popped up from because you were quite, you, were success, you feel, seemed to be successful straight away. But you worked in, um, as a DJ, right? Is that, so that was your sort of first job in, in was it on the whole the first? The first yes, I, I did. I, I worked in, uh, as a DJ in various nightclubs, right. Shades in Blackpool, um, where else? Uh, the Vale Royal uh, Function Room in Oral near Wigan, next door to my sixth form college, uh, and uh, Hospital Radio in Ormskirk. And for some reason, it, this was the late 80s, yeah. and at this time all DJs had to talk in this sort of way, which is uh, not the usual uh, West <laughs> Lancashire accent. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you had all the same sort of anecdotes ready. That was level 42 and something about you, and they get their name from the world's highest car park, the top of which is level 42. So, yes, happy DJ days. And so, so I've heard you saying that you, there was a sort of receptionist at the, at the, the radio station who kind of pushed you, on, pushed you into performing more. It was a little bit like that. Yeah, um, yeah this was at Viking Radio in Hull. Yeah. And I think I'd been doing the afternoon show and I, I would pepper the show with voices, just as a party trick, really, as a, a bit of temporary distraction. And I think in these days, this would have been about 1989, you know, so I, I, I would have done a lot of Frank Bruno. Um, you know, maybe Teddy Christian off the word, you know, people like that, that kind of thing, you know. All those sort of like voices of the ear, you know. I sort of did... Um, I did Terry Christian there, but with the motion of Paul McCartney, you know. <laughs> wasn't really meant to go that way, but hey, whatever, peace, you know. Um, and I, I, I was heading home that day, and Anne-Marie, the receptionist at Viking Radio, she was uh, sort of like the Kylie Minogue of, of Hull. <laughs> uh, uh, she was, she's still a friend even now, and, and she said in this lovely Hull accent, you know, don't waste the fact you can do all these voices, you know. Never mind talking in between Madonna records. You'll, you know, t get an act and do what Bobby Davro does. Uh, so, yeah, that was, that was a little moment when I so, thought... Yeah, so you, you, you took that and then started doing, just doing stand-up with it? Yes, yeah, so yeah. it, it was certainly a moment when I thought, well, yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll give that a try. Yeah. And uh, one of the guys who wrote um, the, the radio adverts, a chap called Paul Sather, was also a bit of a dab hand at writing gags. Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> we'd go to the pub for a, a few sessions and he'd write some gags to go with my voices. Yeah. So the, I remember the gags at the time, uh, Billy Connolly's Scottish cousin, the more the merrier, you know, think, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. And I'd just fashion a little three minute act. And I did, uh, I did my first, we all remember our first stand-up act. And mine was at the Salt End Labour Club in uh, near Hull. <laughs> and this was um, a real old school LE kind of compare. Yeah. You know, most of the time he spoke like Huey Green when he was talking to the people on uh, the audience there at Salt End. Beautiful place, beautiful place. <laughs> he had this Huey Green style about him. And then the rest of the time, he'd, he'd like go back to Hull, you know. <laughs> Just like talking, he says, right, what, I'll, I'll introduce you. You'll come on, take Mark off me, and then you've got 10 minutes, okay. <laughs> All right. Hi there, ladies and gentlemen, got a great act today for you. He's come from Radio Viking, just up the road. Will you please welcome Mr. Don Colstrone? <laughs> <laughs> and I was going through, you know, the various impersonations of John Major, Billy Connolly, Terry Christian, all the characters of the era. And he walks on stage, 
mid-act, yanks the microphone out of my hand, God. and I'm thinking, good grief, what on earth? It wasn't going that badly. You know, there was a few merry little titters, it was fine. And he yanked the microphone off me. Just to let you know, ladies and gentlemen, the onion sandwiches will be served on that trestle table tonight. <laughs> Not at the usual kitchen door. Please leave the way clear. Thank you. Back to you, Don. <laughs> and, then... <laughs> and so what was, the, what was the break that kind of got you? You, you sort of moved into radio and, and spitting image and stuff. So how, how did you make that leap? It was, uh, once again, it was... It, I think the, the start was at Viking Radio. Um, I interviewed Lenny Henry, right. who was performing at the, the new theatre at that time. And we, we started just having a bit of a laugh with voices, you know, back and forth and back and forth. And he was so full of energy and brilliance. And I was playing along. But much, he was taking the lead, and all I could do was follow in a, an inspired sort of way. And he said, why don't you send a tape to Spitting Image? They're always looking for people. Right. So, so, so I did. I started writing down my various voices and then pinching a little bit of studio time where the, in the studio where they used to make the adverts and clicking them onto a cassette, <laughs> bit by bit by bit, and then just sending them off. Yeah. And I think I posted about two tapes off a few months apart. And the second time was when um, Steve Coogan had moved on from Spitting Image, and that left a gap. That was when Alistair McGowan and myself joined the, right. the, the team. Yeah. So, yeah, Spitting Image was... Um, that, was that, that was my first... Sort of, Appointment on on TV, and you did John Major. So you, you did you know, that was a pretty, one of the pretty big names for, for, the, yes, for that era. Uh, uh, sometimes Alistair did him, sometimes I did. But yes, uh, he was. We would never sort of uh, we would never sort of see the puppet. But you had to uh, just remember this puppet. You know the colour of blue tap in your mind. <laughs> and Alistair made uh, an observation that. Um, one of those voices. John Major was one of those voices. It's very easy. Don't push it too much or he goes in the Michael Caine. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably how he should have conducted his entire career. <laughs> I guess we... Because I was writing for Spitting Image around about that time. I don't know if... I, we, we only... Me and Stuart were writing together and we sent off a few sketches, but we did... We got a couple on, mm. but they weren't... They were, they were sort of, they were mis, it was all about Mr Kipling's Cakes that was a sort of runner that I managed to get on about. Um, but uh, Bill... So Bill Dare was the producer... Because we yes. sent in... We, we just as a joke to Bill Dare, who was the, the producer and who produces Dead Ringers as well, uh, we wrote a sketch called Bill Dare's Bottom, which was... <laughs> So it was a pun on Builder's Bottom, but it was basically just his bottom appearing in the sky. And we sent in this script, and I don't think he ever commented on it, amongst all the scripts of John Major's. I think he Bill would have appreciated that, I think he would have done I think, you know, I think Bill, you know, Bill Dare, he talks like this, OK? You know, uh, if ever I am, you know, some sort of omnipotent being, you know, I will... My ass will fill the sky. That's how I'm going to do it. He would have appreciated have that, I'm sure. That's great. And... Um, well, there's so, there's so, it's, I mean, people are sort of fascinated with it, it, the, the art of being an impressionist. And it's sort of, it, it, people sort of ask you how, I mean, I can't do voices at all. Uh, I, I tried to do uh, Robert De Niro's uh, as a visual impression. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. All I've, that's all I've got. But it, I mean, it's sort of acute. I mean, there's obviously that you've got to have that skill. You must have found you had that skill. Usually, people are quite young at school and find they've got the skill of mimicry. But then it's the observational aspect of that that's, that's it's putting in the work, I guess, isn't it? Is, is that is that is that the main? Yes, I, I suppose so. I, I think it starts with a, a love of, of character and just the quirks that people have. 
And when I was growing up in Lancashire, I was surrounded by all of these wonderful people like that. And I was just sort of drawn to it. And I loved to listen and see what was going on. And then I'd love to go and demonstrate this to my parents or my brother and sister. Um, and so many local characters. And my grandmother's clean, I miss his jump, you know. <laughs> I noticed that, uh, you know, she had a little rattle at the back of her throat there, you know, that, that, that sort of a, yes, yes. <laughs> that brings back happy memories. Sort of, uh, <laughs> she used to say, the way I hoover your grandmother's front room carpet is the patterns are in blocks, so I hoover around like that, gradually getting smaller and smaller. A bit like the opening titles to Kojak, you know, like that. <laughs> <laughs> and I just love all these, uh, all these characters, and I'd, I'd just copy them. Yeah. Uh, and part of it would be instinctive, and part of it is looking for the bits you can stretch to make funny, yeah. or just capture their lovability somehow. And um, yeah, just build it together. It builds out like a, like a crystal forming, something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of extraordinary, and when you, do, when you listen to it, you go, it is an, an amazing thing to be able to change your voice that much. The thing, I, the thing I wonder, which is quite a technical thing again, is you know, when, when I hear my own voice back, I don't sound like I think I sound. Mm-hmm. So even though you're listening, to, you're listening to people, but then how do you overcome the fact that your own voice to you doesn't sound the same as it does coming out? Yeah, I, I think a, a big help with that is that we record so much with headphones on through the mic. Right. So you do get to hear right. how it is. Yeah. And when you've done that for a, a certain amount of time, the two sounds just merge into one and you don't really notice the difference too much. Right. So you, you become equally familiar and they just blur together. Maybe the brain just works it out. Yeah. Um, the left hand view and the right hand view and it forms like that. Great. I think that's how it works really. Cool. Yeah, I mean it's fascinating but also it's annoying because you've got a skill. I, don't, I think that's cheating. <laughs> I have no skills. I've just got to try and be oh. funny, and, I, and I'm not that good at that either. And <laughs> you've got like this skill that you can just literally just do anything, can't you? Because I saw you doing to be or not to be and just changing all the voices, and it's brilliant, but it's, you know, don't even have to write that. William Shakespeare's written that for you. <laughs> yeah. All you've got to do is put on the phone. All you've got to do is easy. If I could do the voices, yes. it would be easy. I know, I'm doing, I'm doing it now. I'm bothering <laughs> Paul O'Grady right now because it sort of matches the theme of what we're talking about. Swanning in here with all your funny voices, doing your party tricks. So, you, know, so you can't tap dance, you can't paint, you can't do that. Yeah. But no, it's, it, is, it sort of is like magic, though, isn't it? Because it's... it's you know the the ones, the, the the really good ones. You go that could just be that could just be them. You know there's it's it's there's the ones that are sort of caricatures and fun and, and silly. But then sometimes you, go, you did I was listening to Brian Cox and I was going well that could, you could just have got Brian Cox into the studio and taken the day off and said I'll just say this Brian. From, it's, well, it's that it's that <laughs> close. But it's that close. It's so impressive. I have done that at times. You know if they've. Um, <laughs> If they've done a commentary and then they've had to go, and then there's been a little word that's, you yeah. know, not quite right, and, <laughs> and you just sort of voice. say it and they stitch it in, <laughs> <laughs> and no one would ever know. <laughs> it's not part of the cosmic microwave <laughs> background. And Brian Cox is a very useful character to do because. It takes up time. (laughs) (laughs) That's why an episode of Wonders of the Universe can go on for 60 minutes when (laughs) it's just been walking across a few deserts and going, oh, Crab Nebula. (laughs) 
Well, it's Patrick Moore on the Sky at Night speaking much more quickly. That's why every episode of the Sky at Night lasted 20 minutes and then the news was on. <laughs> but astronomy is one of your, your lifelong interests, right? So it's, yeah. it's great that you only, there's a few things that you would make it maybe come to. But uh, so did you, were you into astronomy like before the voices or as, as a child as well? Interestingly enough, it happened the same week. Right. The same day, the same afternoon. Uh, I, was, I was off school with German measles, I think, one of those fashionable conditions of the 1970s. Um, and I was watching the schools and colleges programmes on BBC Two in the afternoon. I used to love watching those, you know, watch and living in a developing country and math scene, whatever the programmes were. And eventually, um, at the end of the schools and colleges programmes, there was a repeat of the sky at night. And there was Patrick Moore, instantly very, very eccentric, instantly very, very fascinating, one eye open, one eye closed, talking about very fascinating subjects indeed. <laughs> Comet Aaron Rowland, total solar eclipses, the most spectacular phenomenon in all of nature. And I was just gripped by this intriguing character and what he was talking about. So it sort of spawned an interest in astronomy and uh, added to um, the interest in voices and characters. Later that week, I watched the Mike Yarwood show for the first time, okay. which just compounded the whole thing. Yeah. And that combined with just the love of all the local characters anyway, Charlie James and the aforementioned Mrs Jump. It's around about 1975 or 1976, all this was all going all on. came together. Mm. Um, and did you, did you, go, you sort of travel around the world for your, to, to see... You've been to see solar eclipses around the world and that sort of oh, thing. Oh, yes. Yeah. I am an eclipse chaser. Are you? I am an eclipse chaser, and they are... Oh, they're dramatic. They really, really are. I'll never forget um, the 2015 one, which was um, in the area of the Faroe Islands. And uh, a group of us um, travelled on a ship to go and see that. And the weather was just absolutely pristine. We were seeing all the wonderful um, Arctic Circle mountains and geographical features and these crystal blue skies. And it was absolutely amazing. I think, well, this is perfect eclipse weather. What a sight this is going to be. The morning of the eclipse, look through the window, it's fully overcast and <laughs> snowing. <laughs> And you, you, your heart really does sink. Sure. It absolutely drops out of you, and you just... <laughs> you, sort of, you, you almost want to headbutt the weather. <laughs> <laughs> but we were, we were lucky, because with us was uh, some brilliant astronomers, Pete Lawrence and Dr Paul Abel, from the sky at night. And they had a good rapport with the ship's captain, Captain Keldson. Um, and they'd been talking the night before about the weather, and Pete had seen on his satellite uh, imagery thing that there was a potential gap if we steered the ship and went that away. Wow, OK. So the captain said, right, yes. It must have been like the bridge of the Enterprise in there. <laughs> turn the ship around. Um, and so we could feel it almost like a handbrake turn of the ship that <laughs> night. And Dr Paul Abel was next to uh, a couple called Colin and Celia and the very thin wall in the cabin. He could hear all their conversations. And as the ship was turning into choppy seas, he heard the sound of a sliding glass and a smash and someone saying, Oh, Christ, me teeth! <laughs> <laughs> but sure enough, following, following Pete Lawrence's lead, once it was about 10 o'clock, the, the, the clouds began to just... There were cracks appearing. Then they widened, wow. and then by the time of the total solar eclipse, the totality, which I think was about ten past ten that morning, 
it was as if the clouds parted like the waters of the Red Sea, and there was the total solar eclipse. And it was just oh, flabbergasting. Flab you, it's a very eerie alien light, a total solar eclipse. Right. You don't get it in any other circumstances on Earth. Different to, you know, the, the morning twilight or that sort of leaden look you get around the time of a thunderstorm. It's deeply eerie, and the, the clockwork of the the clockwork of the solar system. <laughs> it's a wonderful well, it is, thing. You know, it's easy to forget, and I, I suppose because many of us live in places where the the light is so bright all the time that you don't. In fact, even this morning, my daughter came and I remember staying at my parents' house in Cheddar. And my daughter came and woke me up and said, I want to show you something beautiful. And she opened the curtains and there were just lots of stars, you oh. know. But it reminds you of how incredible it is when you see that and you see, you know, the other day she showed me one star in the sky at our house and she opened this and, and there were, you know, this sort of early morning beautiful skyscape of yes. stars. Yeah, so it is, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. It's a, it's a, well, that's great to have a, 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 an interest that takes you out around the world. I suppose the yeah. other thing about what you're saying, though, the bit that, you, that you can... The, you, you, with great power comes great responsibility in terms of being able to do other people because presumably you, know, you could do adverts in other people's voices and of course you have famously you know, tricked people with your, with your voices <laughs> the, the most famous one being with Tony Blair I suppose Oh yes, yes, yes it was, um, this was the time when I was, uh, I was working with Steve Penk at Capital Radio yeah. and he'd been famous for uh, doing these comedy phone calls for a long time, where he'd say, hello, yes, I'm calling from the council, yes, hello. <laughs> and he'd sort of take on this, like a Mancunian John Cleese persona, and just sort of hammer down the door and just get people going, and then everyone would be laughing at the end of it when he revealed what was going on. And whenever he needed a character voice, then he, he'd, he'd bring me in. And, um, and I, it, it was wonderful working with him. It was, you know, to contribute to Capital Radio in that way was, was terrific. Um, and there was one time I, I said, uh, you know, this William Hague fellow, <laughs> you know, he might be good for such a distinctive voice. He might be quite good for some, some calls. <laughs> and, and Steve, who always saw the most direct way through to anything, he said, right, well, then we've got to call Downing Street. <laughs> OK. <laughs> are, are you sure? Yes, where else? We will call Downing Street. So we thought, well, how might this conversation go? So we just had a bit of jotter paper, and yes, hello, it's William Hay. Can I speak to Tony, please? And obviously the, the switchboard will say, oh, go away, stop wasting our time, go away. And then we can get a nice gag with Hay saying, how do you? I am the leader of the opposition. Am I not important enough to be put through? <laughs> this is an outrage. So, right, okay. But we'll go with that. Here we go. So uh, Steve got the, uh, the, the number of the cabinet office from directory inquiries. <laughs> <laughs> Gentler, more trusting times. <laughs> and he dials the number in, I'm there with the headphones ready to go, and the phone begins to ring. Hello, Downing Street. Uh, yes, hello, it's William Haig. Uh, I wonder if I could speak to Tony, please. Yes, just a moment. <laughs> <laughs> Steve's bouncing up and down on his studio swivel chair, saying, she's got to get him, she's got to get him. Oh, God, what are we going to do? We'll have to say something. Um, oh, those notes can go. Um, uh, oh, uh. And then she came back. So who did say was calling? Oh, oh, yes, it's William Haig. Oh, you sound fine again now. I thought you were an imposter before. <laughs> and then a gap that felt like hours. It must have only been a few seconds. And then that voice appeared. Hello. <laughs> 
Hello, you could see the teeth in your mind's eye. Hello. <laughs> yes, hello, Tony. Yeah. Hello, it's William Hay. Just on a phone for a chat. Everything okay? How are you? Don't work too hard. <laughs> and this uh, famously was when Tony Blair realised something was up because uh, Haig always, probably with a lot of, you know, Yorkshire sarcasm, never called him Tony, even though it was the time of, you know, just call me Tony. Um, <laughs> so uh, he knew something was going on then, but he played along good-naturedly. Right. <laughs> and then that evening, Peak Surreal announced by Sir Trevor MacDonald, um, and th there it was on News at 10, so wow. yes, it, uh, it... 1998, February 1998, that was. Time has flown. Yeah, amazing. Well, I mean, but that's, it's sort of interesting when you get, there's a few times you've got to play, you know, so it's, you've actually got to play real people. Uh, Barry Cryer is one of them. Which oh. was, so you've played Barry in the, the that brilliant Eric Morecambe, Eric Morecambe yes. the thing about Eddie Braben, wasn't it? The, the, that drama about him, which was excellent. How, how yes. was it, did you talk to Barry before you, did, oh, <laughs> did you play Barry? Did. Oh, I shall miss him. I, I, shall, I yeah. shall miss him so very much, those. As everyone has, has talked about, you know, those times when the phone goes, oh, it's old Baz Cryer. <laughs> uh, I'll leave you with this one, just the one. Uh, the, most, uh, <laughs> the most mischievous knock-knock joke of the ball. Knock-knock, who's there? Grandad, stop the funeral. <laughs> <laughs> that, Barry delivered these gags with just that twinkle. Yeah. But, oh, time in his company, what a precious thing. Yes, it was. What a precious thing. Um, but yes, it, it was lovely to, to play his, uh, his, his part as, uh, in, in the uh, Eric Ernie and Me yeah. uh, movie, where at this stage he was, he was warming up um, for Eric and Ernie right. in Eddie Braben's first t time of working with them. And so there he was, and he was, you know, why is abbreviation such a long word? Uh, <laughs> so, oh, bless you, move about a bit. Yes, you're one of the better, cheaper acts. You know, one, all those wonderful, uh, wonderful lines. And um, I think originally, um, uh, Barry's son, Bob Cryer, was going to play it. Oh, yes. But then for some reason he wasn't able to, and so I, I, I stepped in and um, spoke to Barry, got his, got his permission, got his blessing, and yeah. all that sort of thing, and so, yeah. It was a lovely... I think I just had the right hair. There's the number of that. And I was listening this morning on that, again, on a similar theme, um, to, to a sort of more serious thing when you did the David, the David Bowie uh, the show about his last mm. album, which is a really great half an hour of, uh, of radio. Yeah, it's, it's a sort it. of... And you doing him seriously. I mean, you know, not that it wouldn't be... You wouldn't do mm -hmm. serious David Bowie... It? Yes, it was... Uh, it was I, I jumped at the chance to do that. It, yeah. was, it was a real honour to play... Um, to play Bowie, but also, as you say, to, to do, to play a serious yeah. narrative where you weren't just aiming for the gag. Uh, you know, a sketch is like a bank job, you know, the set up, the middle bit, and then the punchline, and you're out of there, to let the story fully flow along. Uh, and it was written by um, a huge David Bowie fan, um, David Morley, who's a very prolific uh, radio producer, worked at Radio One and many stations, big uh, David Bowie fan, and uh, and, knowing his, his catalogue and uh, all that um, information that a true fan knows. And directed by Dirk Maggs, who makes movies for radio. He's, he's the most fantastic audio producer. And just the chance to... Um, I was always a Bowie fan, but to go into that studying mode of listening to all of his interviews and listening to more of the music in a different frame of mind, 
I just ended up smitten by him, really. And I'd love the way that, you know, the way he would talk and the way he'd be thinking of ideas at the same time and those ideas would be forming and everything like that. And just to see this mind and imagination at work and uh, this wonderful clip and the words have stuck with me ever since. And he said, you know, the other thing I'd say is if you, if you feel safe in the area that you're working in, you're probably not working in the right area. <laughs> Always go a little further into the water yeah. than you feel you're capable of being in. Go a little bit out of your depth. <laughs> and when you feel your feet aren't quite touching the bottom, then you're just in the right place to do something exciting. And that was the first clip of his that I'd said. I thought, right, right I will remember that forever. Yeah, that's And great. it was the right sort of sensibility to go in to play yeah. that, uh, that part. Do you think you might do more things like because it's sort of it's it feels I mean it, I haven't really I suppose you occasionally see I mean I suppose Coogan's doing um, Jimmy Savile so it's a, it's a similar thing but almost in radio it's even it's even better because it's you know you're not distracted by the the, the makeup or whatever or, the, or trying to look like someone it's just it's it seems like such a great is there anyone you would like to do a sort of serious oh gosh serious yeah. stuff about? I, I do love doing these you know as we say where you can let, let the the characters stretch out over a whole narrative, over a whole story. Yeah. I've done, done it with Alan Wicker recently right. in a drama called The Other Side of the World. <laughs> and that was a wonderful way that he, uh, he would speak. There was those characters that every impersonator had to do. <laughs> I love the way that his, his voice at the end of the, each word, each syllable, would have this sort of gentle way of fading off in that way, in a true broadcasting style. I'd love to play, my goodness, um, hoping to do Les Dawson soon, oh, yeah. a one-man one man, one man tribute to Les Dawson. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I loved, um, I, I just loved the, the, the style and the heart to um, Les Dawson's writing. Yeah. So erudite and... And then the punchline comes in, and like a custard pie in the face. We were so poor, the ducks used to chuck bread at us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who else? Who else? There's, there's so many. Um, I've enjoyed playing um, John Pertwee. Yeah. In some of the Doctor Who uh, audio novels, uh, with big Finnish productions. I love the, uh, uh, the great elegance of John Pertwee, uh, with that, um, that sharp resonance. But yes, yeah, so many that would be wonderful to do. Um, Benny Hill would be fascinating to play yeah. in a biopic. Yeah. That's one I might stick my hand up for. Um, and also ones that you didn't expect you'd be asked to do. Um, in a few weeks, I'm, uh, I'm playing Huey Green in um, uh, uh, the story of Lena Zavaroni and her career in okay. life. So Huey Green in that is kind of um, a narrator, sort of an all-seeing person that the audience sees, but not the, the rest of the cast in the story. Right, okay. That's so that'd be interesting. I would never expected that to come, but well, that's interesting. Well, he's an interesting character. <laughs> well, all the things that come out about all sorts of... I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not as bad as some of the 70s people, but <laughs> he ended up... He's Paulie Yates's yeah. dad, isn't he? Yes, exactly, yes. Yeah, so there's a lot, so much stuff going on with those guys. It sort of is... It's sort of fascinating, to, but that's why it's sort of... Because in a way, as an impressionist, you do an impression, you do John Majors, and then... There's not much call for it anymore now, but you know, when the John Majors and Edwina Curry story comes up, you're back in. It's almost like you, you have the present time and then there's a little orbital period and then it comes back in a different context, yeah. um, in, a, in a retrospective way. 
And you, we mentioned Doctor Who, and I was going to move on to that next, actually, but you are, you've done a lot of, of Doctor Who comedy stuff and also serious stuff, and you're a big Doctor Who fan amongst everything else as oh, well. Oh, yes, yes. I just, I just love the, the possibilities within Doctor Who. You, you can travel a billion years into the future, taking the entirety of the universe, but it could also just be about that little alien butterfly that just landed there <laughs> and or everything that that represents. Yeah. It's just... And you can basically, because the Tom Baker one is obviously one of your, you know, your top-notch, most famous ones, but you sort of can do all, can you do all of the Doctors, or is there, is there any that you can't, you can't do? Yeah, I, I suppose I do, um, I, I do Tom Baker, John Pertwee, and Christopher Eccleston. Right. They're my go-to ones. But all of the others have their phrases. William Hartnell would be, hmm, yes, one day I shall come back. Yes, one day. <laughs> Until then, there must be no regrets, no tears, no anxieties. Just go forward in all your beliefs and prove to me I am not mistaken in mine. <laughs> um, Patrick Troughton, I sort of... The era of the, the Five Doctors, about 1983 for him. Oh, dear. His voice had mellowed. Brigadier, I think our past might be catching up with us. Run! <laughs> yes, of course, the aforementioned Brigadier, Nicholas Courtney. Ah, uh, yes, wonderful chap. Splendid fellow, the Doctor. All of them. <laughs> um, yes, and John Pertwee, um, I remember interviewing him once, and uh, he said, pass me that book there. Because I'd, I'd been sort of describing how my name used to get mispronounced in school. Cauliflower and all these sorts of names. He said, pass me that book. And he read all the different mispronunci mispronunciations of his name right. that he'd had. Uh, yes, uh, Jan Putrid, Master J. P. Witt, <laughs> Joan Plough, right there. I hope you feel better. <laughs> <laughs> and then with Tom Becky, you have that, uh, you see, it's affected my entire body language. <laughs> Let me sit in a more elegant way. Yes, he's. That the endless anecdotes with, uh, with Tom Baker, I've, I've been lucky enough to record with him a few times with Big Finish Productions yeah. um, in a studio in Tunbridge Wells, and his chair is there, you know, a bit like uh, Alan Bennett class in that Hale and Pace sketch, yes. you know, this lovely, with an anti-Macassar there. And he sits there telling all of these stories, you know. All of, yes, there was a lady, she, she always had an owl. She had, she had several owls, she carried them with her. Yes, I think the owls were convinced that, uh, that she, was, she was their mother. I think she, she incubated the egg between her tits. <laughs> <laughs> and the, this stream of consciousness anecdotes just pour out of him. Um, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, we worked with him in, uh, we did a show called Lionel Nimrod's An Inexplicable World, and he was Lionel Nimrod, which was just usually introducing, and so we didn't meet him for ages, but then he kept, for the final episode he came in, but yeah, he was just, you know... I mean, it was. Yeah, yeah that's the <laughs> only just, way to express I remember it, we it? had a very. Sarah Smith was our producer, who was quite. A, she was youngish, you know, she was sort of our age, uh, but quite serious and austere. And she, she sort of she came in to the green room, just look at her sticking her tits out. <laughs> she just had to go, oh, well, anyway, now. <laughs> but yeah, he was. Uh, and still is, thank God. You know, I look back at that, I was thinking about it the other day, because he just turned 88 the other day. And yes. I was just thinking, oh, so that was 30 years ago. So. I'm sort of about the same age, John Baker. That's, that's the, that's the mindfuck with all these things, yes. I think, when you suddenly go... You know, it's like back when, when, when we first went to the Light Entertainment Christmas parties, Barry Cry would be, oh, wow, there's Barry Cry. 
And, you know, he would seem pretty old to us. <laughs> and then you go, oh, yeah, I'm older than Barry Cryer was when, when he seemed old. Yeah, that's a real... It, it's hard to imagine yeah, that, yeah. isn't it? I think t Tom Baker himself said once, uh, yes, now I'm at the stage of my career where uh, the children who watched me now employ me. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's, there's an element of that, you know, because we was... I mean, he was my... Absolutely, my doctor. And you know, you and me are nearly the same age. And so there was a bit of poetry, but then when yeah. and Tom Baker was there for so long and was so perfect, I think, as Doctor Who. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, when we got the chance, you know, we couldn't believe it when, when he agreed to do it. And he even oh. did, he did a little bit for us for, we did the Edinburgh version of it, and he recorded a bit for us for nothing as well. We didn't pay it. And the only, he came back and we made some joke about Dick Emery, and he just came back and said, I don't know, I think they. About him being dead, it was just some like horrible joke, and he said, "I think you're better than that, boys." You, can, oh, you know, so he made us he made us rewrite that that line. But we went, and we went, "Yes, of course, of course, of course." But he was, you know, so generous, mm. and is so generous. I've been I've been hoping to get him uh, on this, but I, I'd really like to get him on this in front of an audience, which is a bit a bit of a tricky proposition. Now. Well, I think maybe if uh, perhaps if. It, in, in Tunbridge Wells, yeah. if he didn't have far to travel, he might do that. Yeah. Yes, I think yeah. so, yes. <laughs> 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 he, um, oh, I, re I remember he, he would always do the, you know, the voiceovers on the commercials and the sound engineers would always make sure that they kept that tape running to get all the gems that yeah. he would come out with between takes. Uh, some absolutely glorious ones. And usually he'd round off... Um, you know, he might have said, uh, there's a bouncy castle for the kids open all weekends just up junction nine of the M62. <laughs> you know, and then he'd chuck the script away and say, there, I can make whippet shit sound like Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, extraordinary. Uh, so, um, let me, I'll ask before we forget. I mean, I, I could, the thing with you, I could have like a thousand interviews. I could just get you to... Be different people. I would. I will try and do these as you. I think I was thinking I could ask you to answer other things. But I, the thing, I, the other before we do a couple of emergency questions, I found it's interesting with impressionists. It's quite hard to get to them, right. the person of them. Right. I've found yes. that a lot. I mean, Steve Coogan, who I know quite quite well, and I've worked with a lot, but I don't feel I know him very well. It's, it's sort mm. of like the voices are sometimes, uh, and you know, and and Mike Yard would very much have. This is me. Yes, yes. <laughs> do you, is, is, there, is, there, is there an element of that? Do you, do you feel that the voices are sort of like it's a, a protective shield of protecting your, yourself as a person, as an individual? I suppose it's, it's partly a, a party trick, just to keep things chirpy and interesting. Yeah. You know, if I could tap dance, I'd probably do that at regular <laughs> intervals. Um, I think perhaps there's a subconscious thing of that's slightly what people expect you to do, yeah. especially in a professional setting. Um, but yes, to, to, to speak as, as your own self as well, it's actually quite nice when you get a chance yeah. to, to, to get to that. <laughs> well, it is nice, but you know, like, it, that's, I think some, some... I always think ventriloquists, they all turned out to be perverts, and now I'm a ventriloquist, I'm a bit worried about it. <laughs> uh, and and it, there's just, you know, there's some... Because even like someone like Sellers, who obviously was an amazing, you know, actor, but voice guy as well, mm. and it was, it, it, it was... It felt like there were layers and layers and layers. And sometimes, I don't, I'm talking to you about it because I don't think this is true of you, but it just, sometimes it felt like you would get to the middle and then would there be, was there any Peter Sellers in the middle anymore? You know, were the, were the characters so big? Steve Coogan is, you know, where, who is the real Steve Coogan? Yes. It's very hard to, to get to him. I guess because, yeah, it's partly because people expect it and it's partly because that's, it's an easy way, isn't it, to, 
be to socialise and be funny and yes, yes, people. It's, uh, it's just your own way of of being chirpy. Peter Sellers, who you mentioned, a character there of immense complexity. Yeah, immense. The, the way he was wired and uh, in immense complexity there. Yeah. Are you, are you immensely co complex, Oh, I don't John? think so, no. Uh, <laughs> no, it'd be lovely if I was. Um, I'm, I'm, quite, I'm quite mellow and placid, really. Yeah. Quite, you know, unassuming. But maybe there, has to be an, maybe there has to be an element of that for all the, all the stuff to go on to the top of that, you know what I mean? Maybe there yeah. has to be... If, you were, if you're a big, big character uh, and, and, and your personality is that big personality, then maybe it's harder to build the stuff or to... To take it yes, down and build it yes. up again, you know. Yes, I suppose I'm a blank canvas <laughs> in a sense. That's what I wanted to say. Yes. I see you as a sort of blank. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Let me. Well, let's find out more about uh, John Coleshaw. The, uh, the, 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 without any impressions to fall back on, I bet, I bet you can. I bet you can get some. Oh, in. this is interesting. Uh, have you ever been in a police car, John Coleshaw? Uh, yes, in an episode of Heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have. Um, Yes, on, on Red Rose Radio, when I was 19, and I used to do the travel reports, yeah. I once sort of did a feature from inside a police car, and they were talking about the, the equipment and how they co uh, communicate with the, their colleagues and, and keep the roads ticking over. Uh, but uh, I, I've, uh, I have been in a police car. <laughs> I was arrested for murder. <laughs> <laughs> I got away with it. I was, uh, I was, I was driving home <laughs> for Christmas, <laughs> Should be a song about that. <laughs> and uh, I was just, you know, toddling along, you know, the, I'd just gone onto the M6. And all of a sudden, three police cars surrounded me, boxed in, with the blue lights on. And, you know, in my, a, a sense of John LeMessurier came over me. That is very regular. <laughs> I wonder what this could be. I, I suppose I'd better stop, really. So I stopped, and then these, th these, Police got out of the car like Imperial stormtroopers. You could almost hear the <laughs> walking across. And um, would you step out of the car, please? Would you get into this car here? I was thinking, what on earth has gone on here? And they said, uh, this car with this number plate has been reported stolen and been used in a hit and run accident, several hit and run accidents. Oh my God. I thought, my goodness, what's gone on? And then it occurred to me, my number plates had been stolen a few weeks before. Oh, okay. And I was getting parking tickets that I'd had nothing to do with. And so I explained to them that this is what it was, and I'd reported the crime at this police station, and they checked it up, and, and it, it tallied. And then they were very apologetic and let me go and said, Merry Christmas. <laughs> I was just doing an impression of a hit and drive. And drive. <laughs> I didn't even get on police camera action or nothing like that. <laughs> Talking about there was one thing on, uh, on Wikipedia um, that I just wanted to ask a question about. That you sat, you sat for impressionist artist Cherie Valentine Dames. Was she an impressionist artist or an impressionist artist? <laughs> That's a very good question. Maybe, <laughs> maybe there was a, a combination of the two universes <laughs> right there. Um, yes, I did. I did. I, I was. I was. Do you remember it? I was. I was sat there just trying to keep comfortable and keep awake. Uh, <laughs> and she was like this, and she had a sort of a Tony Hart okay. quality about her. Yeah. And yes, and there I was in this sort of 
dappled sort of way. Okay. And it wasn't just, she just doesn't go around all the Impressionists, there's Deborah Stevenson. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> it, this would be a good little, uh, little <laughs> book, I think. I think it was, at, it was at the opening of an art shop. Okay. And I was doing a bit of a turn just to say it were open sort of thing. Okay. And leading up to that, the idea was for me to sit there and be painted, which was rather, rather a pleasure. Very good. All right, I'll ask you another emergency question. Um, this is, well, let's try something. If, you, if all the museums and art galleries in the world got together and said, we love your impressions and we've all decided you can have one thing from one of the museums and art galleries in the world and you can keep it, what piece of art or, you know thing from a museum, artefact from a museum, would you like to possess? Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. My brain is working like a, <laughs> a Google search engine to try and find something. I think it might be... See, I've gone into David Attenborough now <laughs> because it suits what we're going to say. I think it might be the skeleton in the Natural History Museum of... A glyptodon, okay. which was sort of uh, part Ankylosaurus, part pangolin, part armadillo, but from prehistoric times. Right. And it's a strange thing, like a, a great spherical rhinoceros. <laughs> okay. And I'm always fascinated by the idea that these creatures lived and existed and roamed the earth. And I'd love to time travel back to... Um, the late Cretaceous, and just have a, a very cautious uh, look at the majesty of these creatures. Yeah. Um, the glyptodon was one of the mammals from about 30 million years ago. <laughs> I think the Oligocene period, alongside the Androsarchus and the Entelodont. See, I retain these silly little <laughs> words, you see. But yes, I think some, the glyptodon from the Natural History okay, that's Museum. A, well, no one else has chosen that, I can tell you that. <laughs> and you've seemed to have like, an, you've got an incredible memory because you remember everyone's names. I've noticed this in all the interviews. You'll remember that, you know, you remember the name of the, the girl from the, uh, the, the reception. And, yes, but, you know, yes. you seem to remember everyone's names, which is very impressive. But you, to remember those sort of technical details, do you think that's... Is there something about your, 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 this sponge retaining lots and lots of information about everything that you can sort of draw on? Because it's, you sort of need to... If you're going to sort of improvise, as you do with, with your impressions as well, you need to have the arsenal there, right, to... To use the right terms and stuff. Yes, I, I, think I do like to retain random bits of fascination yeah. like that. I'll, I'll, I'll never know quite what it might be, but certain things that just appeal um, in, in a quirky, eccentric way, I like to collect those things. Yeah. And I often find that they are there in, yeah. um, in, in odd precision. It's good. I mean, I think a lot of comedians are... I mean, the comedians sort of have to... You know, certainly as a stand-up comedian, you sort of... And if you're doing any audience work, you sort of need to have at least a bit of information about almost everything. So I think there's a, mm. that's why I think a lot of comedians... And I know you've done... I love all the TV quizzes, and I've done lots of the TV quizzes, and I know you have as well. And that's, that's things why, TV, why comedians do quite well on those shows. How, how have you done? You've done pretty much all of them, as, as, as I have. Yes. Have you, have you won um, everything? Did you win the chase? Yeah, we won the chase. We won the, we, how we, much money did you make on the chase? Uh, 100 grand. 150 grand, yes. between three, <laughs> 50 grand each. I don't know if you, if you noticed this on your episode of The Chase, but uh, when we'd uh, won the total, it was just by a little margin, but no, we'd won the 100 grand. And just off somewhere, we heard the voice of the uh, producer saying, oh, bloody hell. <laughs> <laughs> Gonna have to repeat this one for bloody years now. <laughs> yeah. 
Is, you've done, you've done, you've done, you've done all, you've done pointless. Uh, yeah, pointless. pointless. I've, done, I've done pointless uh, four times, actually. I've done it four times. How many times have you won it? Uh, one. I've only won one as yeah, well. the first time. Last time, I had three failures before we oh, won. It was, I was, my, my teammates, I'm blaming my teammates Yeah, now, I blame my know. teammates. It was their fault, they said <laughs> the incorrect ones, and uh, we were there just to mop up afterwards. Uh, but I, I do love uh, Pointless, the teamwork between Alexandra and uh, Richard Osman. Uh, celebrity Mastermind I've done. Yeah. Done that a couple of times. Um, come second on that each time. I came second last yeah, It's really annoying, isn't it? It is. I came second with, the, with what, before the, the uh, person who followed me, was the highest total that the Celebrity Mastermind had had, and then it was beaten two minutes later, so I didn't... Yeah. That's more annoying, John. It's annoying, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had my hand on the trophy. Yes. It's that skill of quizzing, isn't it, to, when you start missing a few, to not get distracted. Yeah. And almost not hear the next question. Well, my exact mastermind that exactly had that. There was the, you know, and it's sort of weird the way your brain suddenly. There was a question about gladiators, but the answer was gladiator. It was about what Roman, you know, uh, soldier or whatever is named after a flower. And I, but it, the words all started flying around, you know, and I, I couldn't even think of the word gladiator. But I think I was, I was trying to go for something cleverer than gladiator. And then, at the beginning of it, and then I missed the flower and everything. And then the mm. next question, I realised halfway through the question, I was still thinking about the gladiator one. I did manage to answer it somehow, but I hadn't heard half of yes. the question because I was, I was off. It's so true, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Your, your thoughts mix up and it, it's quite distracting, the whole setting of a quiz uh, on the telly like that. It's quite distracting. You, you doubt your own name in, yeah. in some moments. Well, it's because I think also with Mastermind, you, again, we've watched that for whatever, most of our lives, all of our lives probably, and that walk up to the chair and everything, it is, you know, you, it's imbued yes. with this fear. It's lovely to get to do all of these shows, I have to say. I, it's one of the, my favourite things about being slightly famous that I can get to go. It's the only way to get on TV now is to, <laughs> to, go, on, is to go on Pointless. But, yes. I, but I actually just... House, have you done House of Games? You'd be great on House of uh, Games. I'm, I'm doing that in like, March. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. That's, that's, uh, I'm looking forward to that. That's it's a really good fun, but it's all done in a day. So it's, you know, five shows in a day, and that's one where you really... You're, you, uh, there was a... There was a moment in that where I knew the answer to something, and then suddenly it was five minutes later, and I missed the you know, Someone else's one came in, and like, I realised we were three questions. I just zoned out, because you're, you're, you're doing... That was the th by Thursday. Mm. You've done three shows already, and then you, you, it's this very intense... And by, by Thursday, two o'clock in the afternoon, mm. your, your, your brain starts... You lose your, leave your body behind. Like, oh, That's good advice, actually, that uh, Richard. I'll, I'll keep that. Uh, I'll keep that knowledge yeah. for uh, for when I when I do it. You know, just keep the uh, keep the attention. Yeah, I think going. after lunch. I think yes. we do episode four after lunch, and just yeah. I don't know. Take some uh, some kind of drugs that will wake you. <laughs> take some cocaine with you. It's such a relaxed collegiate show, <laughs> yeah, isn't it? That you, it is. you need but these it's, things. You know, it's very. I really love it. It's, and I love Osman. I think he's uh, he's just yes. sort of awesome at everything he does. He's very rude to me. On he's been on my show a few times. He's very rude. He's rude about my mum. He sort of does it with love, though, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he does it in a, a certain way, which is yeah. But you know, you're great, really. <laughs> <laughs> he's good. He's, he's a good kid. Um, so I was very interested, actually, as well. In I, 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 I don't. I think I may have seen this show, but um, I can't remember if I did, but where you actually... Is it called Alter Egos? Oh, where yes. You, where you yes. interview people as themselves. 
It's just such a great idea. Yes. Who did exactly. you do on who did you do on that show and, and how did people respond uh, to I think uh, a, a pal of mine who, who produced a lot of those, Richard Lewis, may even be here oh. today. Um, okay. <laughs> 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 yes. Memories of uh, who wants to be a millionaire there with the um, coughs going on. Um, yeah, but that was uh, that was a, a enormous fun to do. It was interesting the people who chose to do it. Right. Big personalities chose to do it. Uh, Chris Tarrant was, was one of those, and I remember, I remember how he was sitting even to this, hmm, ha, 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 tee -hee, nothing like me. And then Patrick Moore, I think in another universe, Patrick Moore would have been a vaudeville entertainer, and there he was, and we were arguing about cricket and everything like that. Um, who else did we have? Ah, the wonderful Dale Winton. Oh, ah, dear Dale, dear Dale, with that lovely voice there, that wonderful, smooth, dancing <laughs> voice like that. Um, and it, yes, it was... It was I mean, the pressure's really on, though, for you as an impressionist, if you're talking to them, you know, so your impression is up against the actual person. Well, it's great, you can directly copy it. Yes. You can tune right into it. And you think, all oh, right, that's where you are. OK, yeah. you're doing that, I'll do that with my leg, I'll do that. And you can get into this mirror imaging. Um, and afterwards, it, that was a, it was a, a thing that I did on other shows. Right. Um, I, did, I, I, I did the same with Ozzy Osbourne on a, an episode of Parkinson, you know. <laughs> Uh, which was, uh, we did, me and Ozzy Osbourne did a margarine advert together once. And he was looking there, he, he, he was looking at, you know, the I can't believe it's not butter. And he said, it's like fucking yellow axle grease, this. <laughs> <laughs> and he'd say, well, what, what's that word there? How would I say it? <laughs> oh, polyunsaturates. <laughs> um, and also, where else did I do that alter ego thing? I think with Parkinson. I think I, I interviewed Parkinson as, as Parkinson, except I, I, was the, I was the Parkinson from the 1970s, and he was, he was, he was, he was, he was in his present day form. And um, we were sort of comparing time zones, you see. And, uh, and it was like, yes, in a few weeks I've got, uh, I've, I've got a wonderful interview coming up with a very good entertainer, actually, Rod Hull, an emu. <laughs> oh, have you? Oh, well. <laughs> Oh, you'll enjoy that, you'll enjoy that. <laughs> yes, yes, I, I, I bet I will. This, uh, this fellow with the crazy hair and his awkward bird. Oh, right. If you think that's an awkward bird, wait until you meet Meg Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a good... I mean, I just think... I can't see why that isn't on TV every week. I think it's such a good... Like, it feels like you, you could do it as a, a podcast, maybe, and be in control of yourself, because I think just yes. that ability to do the autobiography, and that's even better, you know, if it's... A different time zone, and <laughs> one of you knows yes. stuff that the other doesn't know. That's a really fascinating concept, I think. And yes, maybe worth a revisit, though. Yeah, isn't I think it, it is. Maybe worth a revisit. Uh... Yeah, the different time zones, as you say. Yeah. So they've got something to compare. Because I think it's, you know, it's the, it's, it's the imagination, you know, because it is, it's this core skill, and it's really impressive. And then to be able to do all these different things with it, and some people just fall back, and yeah. you know, I think in the past, especially, I suppose Mike Yarwood. Sort of was the was almost the first person to do it, possibly was he or certainly in to the degree he did. Yeah, certainly his first big time Saturday night TV impersonator. Yeah. yeah. And then I think a lot of people just sort of copied him for a while, and then yes. it's finding your own your own mm. way. Which obviously De Dead Ringers, which have, I mean, he's been going for a, a, a good long time now. It's been on and off, has it? Twenty two years yeah. it's been going. Yeah, twenty two yeah. years. So that's I mean that's you've sort of found your own own way with that with the team. The team's changed a little bit over the time, right? But it's. 
Yes, that there's uh, Tom Jameson and Nev Fountain, the core writers, are, st are still there. Lawrence right. Howarth, the script editor. But new writers do keep coming and going. B Bill Dare, the producer, is uh, he's very much a mentor of new writers, uh, and he will he will bring them in. And I think Bill has got this uh, idea. It's uh, he knows the sense of how Dead Ringers. It's sort of got its own attitude towards things. Yeah. It's, it's got its own sensibility and tone, a sort of a, 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 an impudent sense somewhere between Private Eye and the Beano, perhaps. <laughs> but it's got an attitude of its own, and it's that over the top of the gags. And place that on Radio 4, which is ever so well-behaved. Yes. And the sense, there's a little rebellious, naughty sense. I think that's that, right, because listen, I was listening again, I was listening to that in the car on the way here, and I've heard it many times before, obviously, as well, but... Uh, the, a, I reckon I recognise some of the younger writers. Think, oh, that's good. They've got they've got mm. them in. That's a good person to have it. But I, you know, I, I, when I moved to London and started writing, I was writing for Weekending, which was a bit of a. I mean, it, 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 going for a long time, probably longer than Dead Ringers was has gone at that, that stage, uh, and it had got into a bit of a rut, and I didn't like writing for it. I have to say, mm. it was it got it got a bit too formulaic. But it did feel listening to Dead Ringers that you know it feels fresh and it feels like. You know, yeah, there's the people who've been writing forever, but there's new people coming in, and I, that is exactly what I thought. It felt like a fun show to be asked to work on, you know, as a, as a young writer, especially. Yes, it's, it's, it's the way I get the news. I, I'd, <laughs> I would much rather get the news from reading a Dead Ringer script than yeah. watching the endless uh, news of uh, uh, and social media and everywhere. It's, it's a lovely way to, to, to get it, but um, they've got that wonderful skill, the writers, and it, it's particularly pertinent with Boris Johnson because if you just sort of make him the clown and, and bumbling around you're sort of helping him yeah. in a way uh, so that the writers are they're very incisive and that they really stick the facts that side of the writing for Boris Johnson is really high in the mix now it feels though as well that I mean there seemed to be a period and maybe starting with John Major where it was where things have become a bit boring with with Politicians, or there was a lot of faceless politicians who weren't that interesting to do, or were more difficult to do impressions with. But it feels like over the last four or five years, as the world has imploded, that you have a lot more material of, of amazing oh. characters to work with. Which yeah, ab absolutely. It, it, it's gone a bit like that. You know, there were, you can, these things run in biorhythms. When John Major um, had had his time, you know, Tony Blair had come in. That really set a brand new rhythm and tone, no pun intended, altogether. Ha 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 ha. That really reflected through on the writing. Uh, Gordon Brown, um, equally a character, but in uh, a different sort of way. And, and there he was uh, with that interesting uh, jaw-dropping action uh, at the end of every word. Um, he's sort of seen as an elder statesman now. People look at him with this reverence now. Um, and then David Cameron comes in, very bland, very anodyne. Not much going on apart from you notice know, the repeated hand gesture, generic posh, and wanting to uh, sort of go away and uh, get out of the interview. At, uh, as soon as possible. Although Duncan Wisbew does um, Cameron on, on Dead Ringers, uh, he's found a certain little slither in his character. Yes. It just ping, it ping, it just comes out. And in, in um, he, he had a, a great, great line as, as David Cameron in the uh, Brexit referendum show that we did. And it goes, you see, I only call this referendum because it never occurred to me that I might lose. <laughs> That's the kind of arrogant, entitled bell end I really am. <laughs> <laughs> Duncan delivers that beautifully. Really, really, really does. Great.
It's very hard with, with it's very hard to work out which of them is really to blame for everything that's happened. But I think Cameron probably, you know, when you look, the, work, the terrible thing about Cameron is just that he slithered off. He was very yes. snake like he, he fucked up and then just went. Into his little shed to, to write his books, didn't he? So Let's wait for Strictly to call. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Trump and I mean, do, does it feel like a, a, a gift to have Trump and Johnson, or does it does it, does it feel like the the real world weighs down? Don't you think I'd rather not have a good voice to do? It's a gift in terms of that they were sort. You know, if the Cameron era had left us feeling a bit short of characters to latch on to, yeah. Trump and Boris Johnson felt like great quantitative easing. <laughs> dropped in like two Olympic-sized pool dollops of rancid blancmange. <laughs> there you are, work with that. Um, and yeah, the, you know, the Darnold, I suppose you could have something about... <laughs> I think we developed a certain way of doing the Donald where it was kind of nice if you could just get by with gestures and not have to talk as him. <laughs> That's his Las Vegas neon, isn't it? <laughs> It yes. almost feels, though, with Johnson and Trump, that they have almost looked and thought, how can I do a comedy caricature of a politician and how can I... Mm -hmm. You know, but it's all, they're, all, they're, so, they're so, you know, exaggerated themselves as people. And you, and you certainly feel with Johnson that that was a deliberate thing, and I think probably with Trump as well. That if yes. I can turn into this caricature, if I'm, people find me funny, it sort of does... The people who find me funny and don't like me, it's still they're finding me funny and I get something from that, and the people who... You know, yeah. just like arrogant bellends for some reason. <laughs> thing. I want the most arrogant bloke who cares most about himself more than anyone else, and 50% of us are going to vote for him, whatever he does. It uh, is. It's, it's, the, it's the greatest sort of self-manufactured shield and gimmick that you could have. If you can be someone who no one ever expects you to behave in any serious way, no one uh, expects you to say uh, a serious word in any kind of way. Uh, you know, sometimes I try to look as though I give a monkeys about the job I'm doing, but most of the time I even fail in that too. <laughs> <laughs> but then there's no, uh, that's what's just sort of fascinating about them is as long as they don't, you know, if, if they don't go, if they don't feel shame, and they won't back away. Mm -hmm. They can stay in for as long as they want. You know, Trump almost managed to work a way of losing an election and staying. <laughs> and I think he'll yes. be back. I do think he'll. I think. I think. Yeah, it's come I back. think it's interesting to watch. I, I think that gimmick is running out for Boris Johnson now. Yeah. It's interesting to watch this. The oxygen supplier. That gimmick just gradually ebbing <laughs> away. We'll see. <laughs> um, I didn't know this. I didn't. I missed this. But you got to number twenty-two in the uh, the pop charts oh, yeah. a couple yes. of years ago. Yeah. Well, it was a, couple, a, a, a couple of weeks ago. Yes. Oh, I'd. Um, I thought that I would write a Christmas record, specifically. This was the appeal of the idea, specifically to cover the funny week between Christmas and New Year. Yeah. Because it occurred to me that there wasn't anything for that funny period of time. <laughs> so uh, I got together with um, uh, a couple of friends, a brilliant musician called Michael Bannister, who's played with Texas and other bands, and uh, I'd written this song, sort of channeled Chaz and Dave and, um, <laughs> and a bit of status quo. 
And uh, yeah, we, we, uh, we came <laughs> up with it. And I was interviewed by Chris Moyles, and uh, the thing went to 22 in the iTunes chart. Pretty good. And then it went out again. <laughs> <laughs> there might be a reason why no one's written songs about that particular week before. Well, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> it, was, it was all about, you know, lazy sofa days and people queuing up shopping and it's making the news and kind of that. It was inspired by watching Chas and Dave's Christmas Knees Up. Right. Uh, on Channel 5, uh, and I thought, we need a song like that for this funny week. But yeah. we'll, we'll give it another run next year and see. Yeah. I always find that, it is a very, it's the, the perineum, a lot of people call that one of the, there's one, so there was a better one than that someone came up with, it was more Christmassy, but uh, it's that, but there's, uh, uh, it's, I, I feel sorry for the people who die in the last week of the year, because they usually miss, I think Betty White was one this year, mm. but she, you miss out on the looking back at the year, and then you're not in the next one, so you sort of, you die in that week. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Betty White was big enough, I think, to overcome the <laughs> dying at that particular time. Um, and are you, is this true? I saw this. I don't know where I saw this, but are you, are you going to be playing Jeff Tracy in Thunderbirds? Or have you done that? Oh, yes, I, I, I do that in the audio Thunderbirds. Wow, OK, yeah. I, I do. I play, uh, yes. Stand by for action. <laughs> yes, the wonderful voice of, uh, of Jeff Tracy, superbly created by Peter Dinley back in the day, and it's yeah. one of those where you can be very heroic. That's right, son. Thunderbird 3, engage. Stand by for action. Thunderbirds are go. But it's quite interesting if you relax even a little bit. It's not too far before. You'll probably come to rest at Sir Terry <laughs> 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 Yes, you do, and you've got to mouth in Virgil. I think you should. <laughs> Don't let that fiend, the hood, get away with scuppering another of our missions, you know. <laughs> I mean, this is something, I think, obviously, when you're, when you're in that world and when you're doing voices, and it, it's seeing those, those voices that, that no one else would notice are similar. And it, it, it's, it's an amazing thing when, you, when, you, when it's demonstrated. I've seen, you know, I've seen you do that a few, with a few voices. Have you got, what are your favourite close voices? That, oh, yeah, the, the voice neighbours thing. Um... I, I love it when, when there's a big contrast. Yeah. I think quite an enduring one. I think it might be Russell Crowe. I think it might be Russell Crowe in his um, movie mode. Gladiator, he would be in this sort of manner. Master and Commander. If he's on, uh, you know, the Graham Norton show, he'll be uh, a little bit more relaxed and become, uh, you know, a bit of a stroppy, pug-faced, pugnacious individual in that sort of way. But I've always thought if you took the gruffness of um, Russell Crowe and just gave it a Lancashire edge, then you would get Les Dawson. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. <laughs> I shall return to these ramparts this very evening. <laughs> I shall bring Gracchus and Proximo, and I shall kill Commodus. Because he's a barn pot. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you still took, you, do, you did a tour show with, with Bill Dare, wasn't yeah. it? With, uh, which was the uh, Great British Takeoff. <laughs> is, are you still, is that an ongoing thing? Because I know you, did, you toured with it quite extensively. Yeah, we did about four years of yeah. that. Uh, yeah, we'll probably do some more yeah. in, in so due what, course. So, what's the, what's the is it, it's an improvised thing. It's just it? like this. Yeah. It's just like this. And, um, it's a conversation or that'll tee me off into remembering various anecdotes or various characters. Yeah. A little bit biographical. Bill sort of steers through, um, you know, 
from those early days of yeah. spitting image and um, working at park motors in Ormskirk, cleaning cars <laughs> and listening to the Radio One Roadshow, thinking that sounds like an interesting job. I'll, I'll take my aim there. <laughs> so yes, it, it's quite improvised, but yeah. a bit biographical as well. Cool, that's great. And what, what's, what's going to be coming up in the, in the future? Have you got anything exciting planned or are you...? Yes, I've got some more, um, some more Doctor Who audio stories coming up with, uh, with Big Finish Productions, um, playing Huey Green in the Tim Whitnell play, uh, Lena, mm -hmm. that's uh, in March, and uh, in Edinburgh this year. That's, that's what I'm hoping to do. Uh, my one-man play tribute to a very splendid fellow who may or may not sound a little bit like <laughs> Uh, great. Well, uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see. I'm not sure whether what, what I'm doing with Edinburgh this, but I think I've heard it's going to be every single comedian in, in the country is going to be up there. So I yes. think it'll be a big celebration of, of getting back, hopefully, yes. getting back to some kind of normality. Did you, did you find the lockdown time difficult? Was it were you not being able to get out, or were you doing lots of things? It was just a time to adapt, wasn't yeah. it, really? Just um, embrace the simplicity for a time. Um, everything went on to Zoom, didn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, sort of a, a comedy gig that you might do in a live space would, uh, would go on to Zoom and become a charity sort of uh, interview, a, a bespoke little TV piece rather than a live show for the organisation involved. Um, so, yes, it was just a case of adapting yeah. to this new sort of two-dimensional zone and making out what you, what you can, the best you can yeah. with it. Yes, I, I suppose I enjoyed the simplicity and the chance to pause for a little while and just gather your thoughts. Yeah, I think there, there was lots. I mean, it would be, be really interesting to see what the, the Edinburgh Fringe is like this year. There was, there, was a, there was one last year, but it was just a few, a few people who went up, and I think it sounded mm. like it was a bit like the early days of the Fringe. It was a bit more kind of crazy and people trying stuff out and yeah. less, far fewer acts up there. So I think this year it might just be back to being... An unwieldy amount of people, but yeah, should... well, we'll be ready for it. Yeah. Think, won't we? By that time, we'll be ready for it. And have you done the you've done the fringe a fair amount before, right? Yes, uh, I've I've done the um, Great British Takeoff show yeah. there a couple of times. We've done Dead Ringers live there yeah. a few times. Um, I remember my earliest memories of it was simply just uh, travelling up with Radio Four yeah. and recording a live version of a show there, either Dead Ringers or First Impressions. Or uh, and this is them. Some of those panel shows. Yeah. Uh, lovely to go and, and do that in, in Edinburgh. Yeah. Yeah, it's great fun. Well, look, it's been really fantastic uh, to talk to you. And, uh, there's so there's so much we could have talked about, and we've got through lots of it. So that is absolutely fantastic. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please give a massive round of applause to the amazing John Colshaw. Thank you very much, everyone. <laughs> have a good night. You have been listening to Rahalastapa with me, Richard Herring, and my guest, John Culshaw. Thank you very much to the Bristol Slapstick Festival, everyone there, Chris Daniels, and all the people who looked after my children over this weekend while my wife, wife Katie Wilkins, had COVID, so was at home. I'm indebted to my director and producer and friend, Chris Evans, not that one, and also to everyone at St George's for having us during this lovely recording this is a sky potato fuzz and go stripe.com production for the internet go to richardherring.com slash gigs 
for all information about upcoming shows, please come and see us live or gfsboxoffice.com for live streaming. Thank you very much. Goodbye.